0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. It's impossible to have followed education for the last 40 years and not know Chris Whittle. He's a serial education entrepreneur, a reformer, as he puts it. And as you'll hear, he's not done yet. After various bold ventures, among them founding Edison Schools, co-founding Avenues, the World School in Manhattan, Whittle is now preparing perhaps his biggest venture yet, what he calls the first modern school. It's a global vision, K-12 through education for the globalized, connected world. And I mean global. Once completed, the Whittle School and Studios will have 36 campuses across 30 of the world's leading cities. That's some 90,000 students and thousands of faculty. The first two campuses are scheduled to open in Washington, D.C. and Shenzhen, China next year. Whittle aims, simply to reform the institutionalized one-size-fits-all approach and make relevant, flexible, and personalized education at scale, a new approach to learning in innovative physical environments. The vision is attracting some leading educators and education reformers in the world. Can it work? Can Whittle and team create something that not only lifts individual students in this unique school, but extends beyond and impacts education more broadly from America's urban centers to underserved populations globally? That's what I asked him. Chris, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: Uh, Happy to be here.
0: So I've seen a few times now around as I've done research uh, for the call um, where you've been called an Education entrepreneur—that uh, seems like a pretty good description to me. Is that how you'd describe yourself?
1: Uh, it's good enough. Um, <laughs> I often use the—I often use education reformer as well, uh-huh. because um, my last two or three decades have been a lot about trying to change schools for the better.
0: Yeah, they they, they sure have. And I, I guess out of the whole range of things, that one. Could be called, and I'm sure you know. You've you, you've probably heard it all. Uh, education entrepreneur or education reformer um, certainly has. Both of them have to be on the positive side of the spectrum. We hope we see. <laughs> uh, so, in fact, that that you know. You're obviously not new. Um, to the education reform track, um, it's been your your life's passion, at least a significant part of your life's passion. Um, you know, it, it certainly is an outsider and somebody who's viewed um, and been aware of some of the things that you've done. Um, on education, how, how would you describe your overall vision? And one of the things I found myself wondering is, have you had the same vision since the start or has it evolved as you've seen what works and what doesn't work?
1: A great question, and the answer is yes, I have had uh an idea and a plan that I've actually been working on for almost three decades and and I feel like uh, if you want to think of it as mountaineering that I've gotten to camp one camp two camp three i I don't think I've ever summited and um and I'm hoping that uh, in, in my last endeavor here, uh, that will happen. But yes, it is an idea I've been working on for a long time.
0: Do the altitude changes uh, affect the approach?
1: <laughs> the, um, uh, I'm trying to work with the metaphor. I'm not sure I can they uh
0: I mean is it still one is it still you get higher up yeah, as you get higher i mean is it still one foot in front of the other and 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 your, have you kind of had to change you know to keep your metaphor have you had to change your climbing approach as you reach different altitudes
1: uh definitely, and uh with each with each trip up the mountain um uh, I've learned things and it's been a very iterative process and and it spans really three endeavors, Edison schools, which was a, really the pioneering uh, endeavor in the, in the world of charter schools and then avenues in New York, which is um, one of the great private school launches in, in U S history. And then what I'm working on today, Whittle school and studios and it, and that they're very much connected in my mind, and the lessons from one have informed the other.
0: So describe to me the uh, the, the newest one. What I assume from your point of view will be the um, the next uh, greatest private school experience, um, <laughs> not just in, the, in uh, New York but in, in the world. I, I would assume that that will.
1: will... I, I and and my last rodeo. I think <laughs> the um, the. Um, what we are doing is building uh, what we think of as the first global school and at the same time uh, what we think will be the first truly modern one. And we are building major campuses uh, in the great cities of the world to serve children ages 3 to 18 Um, and our first two campuses open 18 months from now, uh, they're under construction, uh, in Shenzhen, China and in Washington, DC. And then, uh, the next year we open in two other Chinese cities, Hangzhou and Nanjing. And then we return back to the United States and are working on our next wave of sites, uh,
0: there. And so, and I want to ask you, obviously, about the specifics and, and you, you know, you talk about the construction and, and obviously the design and the physical approach of what you're doing, um, is, is a key part of it. And the, the drawings that I've seen look, uh, really extraordinary. Um, and the actual curriculum, et cetera, I want to get into that. But, but at the, at the core of it and, and at the core of your vision of what is required to make great education. Um, What is it? What sits there? And and how does that, you know, inform or drive uh, Whittle school and studios?
1: Um, I'm not going to be able to do that in one paragraph, but maybe (laughs) in three or four. I'll take it. I'll take Um, it. This is not a
0: soundbite conversation. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Which is, is really a a pleasant uh, relief, by the way. (laughs) The, um, a central theme of what we're doing is that a system of schools can do things that a single school cannot, and that most of the great schools of the world today are single-site institutions, the Exeter's, Andover's, Eaton, um, in China, Ren Fuzhong, uh The They're single-campus schools. And what we are doing is building what we call one school with many campuses. And we believe that the scale and systems of that provide uh, real possibilities for both students and faculty that you wouldn't see elsewhere. And we can come back to that. But that's one of our key um, themes. The second is we believe children... Have got to be prepared for a global world, and that broadly that means they should not be monoglots, uh, but should speak uh, fluently multiple languages, and that they should have experience during their youth in multiple cultures. And a system of schools enables that in a way that a single school does not. And then finally, we. Uh, we often think in kind of old school, new school um, frameworks, and old schools were all about educating groups of kids at the same pace with the same program, uh, et cetera. And we think a new school uh, is all about personalizing uh, education and responding to children's strengths and interests and weaknesses in a in a very individual way. So. Those are big themes, and I'll stop there. And
0: well, uh, yeah, that no, that's let you per- pick one. Thank you. And well, so I'll. I, uh, it's a multiple choice uh, opportunity, and uh, you know, unless Professor, you tell me, I'm uh, obliged to pick just one. <laughs> I may, I may, I'll, right. I may pick more more than one. So I'll come back in a second to personalized education because I'm very, very curious about uh, how one does that at scale. And you're doing it. Um, your your plan is to do it in a. You know in a way that 's going to involve i guess ultimately your vision is ninety thousand full time students um, and so while that i mean that that certainly might qualify as as at scale but you know so so literally in terms of how it will work, um, you talked about uh, you know putting campuses in some of the great cities uh, of the world um, I think you're planning on uh, thirty of them uh, so how how will it work if i 'm uh, a student in washington d c Uh, Do I then have the opportunity at some point to attend the campus in Paris, in New York, in Tokyo, in China? How how will it work? How do those campuses get connected um, beyond philosophy, curriculum, et cetera? Um, Talk to me about that.
1: Here's the way it would work. Um, As a student, you would not be required – To study elsewhere would but you would be highly encouraged to do so and most families that choose us they understand that and are going to partake of those opportunities and starting in middle school that might be uh, simple summer programs of three to six weeks uh, at our different by the way all of these campuses have dormitories as part of the campus And so um, you might do a three- or six-week program uh, at another campus uh, a couple of times during middle school. Then as you move into high school, uh, you might do semesters abroad, and you might uh, do a full-year abroad uh, as well, again, at our campuses. An important thing is you can do that with your friends so that uh, rather than kids... Uh, feeling that they have to disrupt um their lives to do this we would organize groups of kids to do it uh together and and they stay if you will within their school because it's one school
0: across the globe understood and and the personalized education um which makes a great deal of sense i, I you know as a uh father of students myself um you know you you understand uh, very quickly, that despite uh, they're they're all coming from the same gene pool, uh, they're very different, and you know get it going through a similar education system or the same education system. Uh, in my case, a public system. Uh, I still understand why each one really does need to be treated differently. Um, how, how does that happen? How do you do that? How do you do that with 90,000? How do you do that across 30 campuses? How do you do that in a way where you've got, you, I mean, you do have a curriculum. How do you deliver personalized education?
1: It starts with one core thing. A school has to know its students. And and what that really means is individual faculty members need to know each student and and I'll take it a step further is we believe that for this to work we have to have the world's best advising system and and to be quite specific a an individual faculty member will have 9 students that they are an advisor to over a period of 3 years so they will keep that group of students they'll meet with the group every day uh and they'll meet with each individual child within the group uh every two weeks meaning in one-on-one sessions and that may not sound like a big deal but we've yet to find uh, a school and we've visited schools all over the world that's doing it um and then so it starts there uh, and in those sessions, uh, what, what an advisor is doing is listening and, and going, what interests this particular student? And then how can the school be responsive to that? And how can the advisor say, well, if you're interested in robotics, are you aware that these six students uh, are working on a project? You might want to be part of that project mm-hmm. are you aware of this particular teacher that is very strong in that are you aware of this summer camp that uh, is extremely strong in this do you know that we have a center of excellence at our campus in Shenzhen that's about robotics and maybe you want to spend a year there Um. And what it's doing is listening, and then guiding students towards resources that the school has, and giving that student enough schedule flexibility to pursue that. And I've compressed into a minute and a half what is actually a lot of uh, schedule engineering within a school. But <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> but that is what we're doing.
0: It, you know, what, what's coming to my mind, two things that are coming to my mind. One is, um, yes, I'm sure the operational logistics aspect of the scheduling that that's its own massive headache. I, I, I'm sure. Um, but on the other side, you know, it's a, it sounds like a connecting of the dots and the, the example that I'm kind of feeling it, it's a, it's, and it's bringing it earlier into the, education um, uh, timeline, I think. So as kids, you know, better probably than I do, as kids go start thinking about college, many, many folks, uh, you know, you get either help from the school dean or, you know, a lot of folks have Uh, college advisors, and there's a whole industry around that. But they really start thinking about, okay, who are you as an individual with the kid? And then what are the opportunities in the uh, world's great universities that might make sense for you, given your interest levels? And too often, I think, it's not until kids reach that level that they even start to think about connecting interests and skills and opportunities and, and it sounds like you're able you're, you're figuring out a system to bring that earlier in the education timeline. A, am I understanding you correctly? Er,
1: absolutely. earlier and often and mm. and the and, and what you pointed out is a very good example. Uh, a lot of good advising goes on in the, in the kind of end of high school. By the way, a lot of good tutoring goes on in that time as well yep. but both of those tend to be outside the school setting and what we're trying to do is to bring uh, that kind of personalized activity into the school setting and what it means is you have to you have to change calendars and schedules and you got to make hard choices to do it we think it's really important one other thing is that sitting with that teacher and and that student in an advising session uh is a dashboard of information and for a teacher and the student to have data that is a sense of what's going on with the student in in different disciplines uh, and areas of study uh, so that um a, t- a teacher is seeing information, uh, and the student is as well, and that matters. So we we view this as technology enabled, but not really technology driven. Uh, the and and there's one other thing I wanted to mention. There's a there's a really good example of this in existence, which is the two the tutorial systems of Cambridge and Oxford for hundreds of years. Have been based on these kind of uh, one-on-one faculty-student relationships, and they, you know, they really work.
0: Yeah, no, i well. Uh, those are two not terrible brands, um, to say the least. But again, even you know, bringing it uh, earlier and, uh, and and more often is, um, you know, that that seems to be something uh, a bit different. What, what does pre-enrollment look like? Are you doing pre-enrollment at this point?
1: So we we literally just launched. Um, uh, we had four uh, launch events in Washington, New York, Beijing, and Shenzhen over the last five weeks, and and we have admission teams on the ground uh, in Washington and in Shenzhen, and we've just begun parent events, and and literally in the last six weeks. We have seen thousands of parents in uh, both communities, and so it's it's exciting and um, going well
0: yeah well good for you and it, you know obviously so many people are looking for uh, uh, new and better um, first of all, there's almost nothing that uh, um, parents will want to do for their kids across all uh, countries and regions and uh um, you know socioeconomic levels. And uh, you know, there's so much frustration with education generally that uh, you know we all know that that's that's where it starts. If I could, let me ask you, you know, you you you've been at this so long, you know the global trends um, and and you know global views and and a little bit of philosophy um, that that I'm curious about. Uh, a couple things: one, you know, your view of uh, a globalized world. Um, at a time of increased nationalism, um, and so I, I want to ask you about that uh, first, just picking up on on the other point you, your point about the advising that needs to go on and the tutoring that needs to go on and it doesn 't usually happen until later and among the reasons why it, it, I think why it doesn 't happen is it costs money, and you know your school as well will cost money, and private schools. Um, cost money and, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, the school is expected to come with, you know, a not insignificant price tag. How do you work that, you know, I think a lot, I'm sure you do as well, um, about uh, the opportunity gaps that society faces, um, the inequality gaps that, uh, you know, are are existing in this country and other countries, um, you know, turning into public policy challenges uh, from my point of view, Um, how, is that something I'm sure that you worry about that? How do you worry about it? How, and, and how will you, is that something that you're going to be able to account for, um, as part of the schools and, uh, the school and studios?
1: Um, there were two questions there, one about globalization and then the other about educational equity. Yeah. So let's start with educational equity. Thank you. Um, The, uh, it clearly Is on our minds and we are doing a significant amount but we should be humble about how much we can do the um, to be quite specific about what we do we we take seven percent of our top line and that goes into what we call our social responsibility fund and um, and to give that a little perspective Um, most uh, enterprises, companies are putting about 1% of their bottom line Mm. um, into various kinds of of contribution. Because we are a school, we want to be and should be much more robust. So um, versus, if you will, standard company, we're putting about 20 times as much of our um, total economic means into social responsibility we break it into uh, a couple of buckets one is what you would see at most good schools which is scholarships uh, uh, essentially financial aid and at a typical campus about 300 of our students uh, our typical campus by the way is about 2500 students Um, uh, about 300 of those will be on some form of aid. And that's anywhere from a quarter ride to a full ride uh, at the school. Um, And then the second thing we do is we try to support uh, other education reform organizations within the cities that we're in. And the last thing we're doing is what we call a one-to-one program. And I'm going to give you a, um uh, a little bit of educational economics here there are con- there are countries where the per pupil spend uh if you if you go to Zimbabwe um the per pupils annual spend on education is just over a hundred dollars so annually wheat annually Ugh. okay <laughs> the um if we a, rather than give a full ride $40,000 scholarship in Washington, we can take that 40000 uh if you will, export that um, into developing countries. And we, for that $40,000, let us say instead of $100 a child, we said we're going to do $1,000 per child. We can do 10 times the funding that uh, a typical school in that region would do. Uh, But instead of educating one student in Washington, we can educate 40 students in um, those countries. So we're doing a variety of different things, and our objective is for every full-pay student in the school, we'll be providing an education somewhere uh, for a
0: student who could not afford it. Excellent. And the, uh, the, the, the globalization push, um, in your very strong core part of the philosophy, it sounds like obviously 30 campuses, uh, you know, 30 cities, 36 campuses, uh, that we live in a globalized world. And, uh, that's that's among the skills that one needs. At the same time, you know, we seem to be in an age of rising nationalism, whether that's uh, China or Russia or Venezuela or Hungary um, or France, EU, (laughs) yep, or France or uh, here in the U.S. Um, So, how how do you feel about those growing tensions, and how does that uh, you know inform or impact uh, your your global education approach? I think it makes it.
1: Actually, more important because it, the idea that, if you will, we're going to return into our shells, <laughs> our national shells, if you will. Yep. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's actually going to be realistic anywhere. Um, but if that were the case, then uh, global skills, in a way, become more important uh, because that means. Even more so, we have to navigate uh, the distance between cultures, uh, if you will. And um, the second thing I would say is I think there's no turning back on the, the reality that we're a global world. And and for, for many, many reasons, um, um, as, as everyone knows, um, air quality does not recognize national boundaries. Um, <laughs> and if, yep. if you've got pollution it's going to go everywhere and and we have to deal with it uh, as as one world not as um, you know 30 countries or whatever so um i
0: think it makes our mission even more uh, important well, as you look domestically and, and there's been, you know, there's so much talk about it and right now, uh, with an education secretary, Betsy DeVos, who, who brings a, a great deal of attention, um, having focused on education as you have so many years, um, what's your, what's your evaluation? What's the, what's the state of, and what what's the role for public education today, um, in the U.S.? I mean, it's got, you know, you're finding alternative, You're finding additional solutions, um, which I take as meaning that you just, you know, a a statement that as many folks do look at the state of our public education, and um, you know, one can get frustrated and um, even sad, perhaps. Uh, But I, but and yet there is, I think there is a role. I personally happen to think there is a role for public education. So I'm curious as to how uh, you view it. I, I think there's a
1: absolutely critical role for public education uh, everywhere. And that um, for, for many years I, I've been, I'm agnostic when it comes to where a modern school comes from. Meaning our mission is to create a next generation of schools. And one of the great things about education is that there really aren't any patents in education, and that innovations travel pretty freely and so if we if we do our job well and we create uh, a school that's admired, it will also be a school that's followed in terms of um educators everywhere and and to let you know. Schools all over the world have opened their doors to us for us to come see what they're doing. Mm. Uh, and all of that has shaped who we are. And it's our responsibility to for, for our doors to be open uh, as well. And part of those social responsibility dollars that I mentioned earlier are actually to reach out to the public schools within the cities that we're in, uh, and to collaborate in a variety of ways with them. Uh, an example, uh, we, I'll give you two examples. In Washington, uh, we've reached out to the largest charter school in Washington and said we would like to sponsor groups of their students to study at our campus in China wow. uh, in the summers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we've reached out to the uh, public schools in China uh, and said that we would like to host conferences uh, there in China for American educators to to see what's happening in, in Chinese schools and vice versa. So um, a, a school is part of the, the broader uh, world of education, a private school, and, uh, and public schools and private schools should be talking and sharing all the time.
0: Yeah, well, uh, clearly, anyone who has some awareness of your career, the idea of private-public partnerships is um, not something that you uh, are, are unfamiliar with, and uh, you know, I, I would, I would certainly, I'm not surprised that a core component of what you would be doing um, would would involve some some outreach there. Um, two two last things that are on my mind. One is um, the talent that you have attracted. Um, Nicholas Dirks, the former Chancellor of university of california um, i don 't know James Hawkins but you know the headmaster of the Harrow School. Uh, your president is former boeing senior Boeing executive, and i don 't know him but Ian Thomas um, obviously Benno schmidt, a uh, person who you 've done you know in, you know a, a little bit of work with um, in yeah. the past <laughs> yeah, and the former yale president uh you know Getting talent like that, attracting talent like that, um, on the one hand, obviously very, very hard. Um, but on the other hand, I assume that there's an idea, a core of an idea that is, is a, a – you know, it's a light that is, is attracting the talent to you. What has that process been like getting – and you talked about the incredible – the important role that the faculty will have to play – Um, What has it been like for you trying to attract talent to a global school that physically is only just now starting to exist?
1: Easier than you would think is the uh, answer. Mm. Um, This idea is a magnetic idea. And once the capital really was in place, because until that occurs, it, it would be difficult to do what? We've done in terms of talent, but once uh, our capital formation was well underway, the this is an exciting uh, mission, and um, we we had a um, a management committee call the other day, and it's a team of about twenty people, and um, they were in sixteen different cities around mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. when when they called in and. Uh, and even when your management committee calls are exciting, that's a good indicator of um, um, yeah. of that what what you're doing is interesting. So, um, um, people have flocked to this uh, because it's um, it's complex, it's meaningful, uh, and it has the chance to affect uh, a lot of students and uh,
0: education worldwide. And just to close out for me, Chris, um, about <laughs> you, um, how, how did you get into the whole education thing in the first place? Um, I saw where you were, but I don't know where you were actually raised. I saw you were born in, is it Etowah, Tennessee?
1: Et, I, et, et, you you pronounce it well, Etowah. Etowah. And, it, uh,
0: and I don't know if that's where you were, were raised, in fact. it. Um, You know, it looks like it's, uh, Uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh, it's a small town, um, in Eastern Tennessee. Yeah.
0: Uh, foothills of the smoky, foothills of the smoky mountains, it looks like.
1: Yes. Uh, we, we saw them from our doorstep and, um, and I first started thinking about this as a junior in college and, uh, in 1968 when, um, when all my fellow students were protesting uh, the Vietnam War, I heard about a, an education reform conference that was happening out on the plains of Kansas, in Manhattan, Kansas. And I said, you know, I want to go see what that's about, and drove across the country. And, um, and that conference, which was um, uh, put together by a group called the National Student Association, um, it re- really started me thinking about it. Um, and I ran for student body president the next year on a, um, uh, my bumper sticker read for a better education and, um, and we won. And then I quickly learned how hard it was to change a university, but, mm-hmm. but the, um, that's when it began and it's stuck with me
0: for 50 years yeah well, there was a lot of revolution going on in 1968 and uh, there was yeah yeah certainly uh, education being part of it makes sense Chris thank you uh, thank you for your time and uh, thank you for the work that you do and uh, the passion that you've had uh, obviously for uh, education for uh, you know a number of years now
1: and thank you for for giving me the time